1: Welcome to the Faber Keto Podcast. This is episode 60. And today we're interviewing Dave Wolfe. And Jackie, we know Dave through the various sorts of Facebook groups and in particular the Facebook groups that are dealing a lot with now and focused on sugar addiction.
0: Yes. And I um, have seen him on Twitter as well. So he's very connected to Dr. Jen Alwyn, because they've both done Bitten johnson's training.
1: And it's really, I suppose, this is another movement in the community where we are obviously recognizing how addictive and the problems caused by sugar addiction, um, and that's sort of wrapped up in a lot of the type 2 diabetes, the obesity, the other complications, and how that's addressed really through um, not eating sugar anymore. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you do have that addiction, you have to abstain completely. I know we, we were always talking about moderators and abstainers, and, and I think we had this conversation after we spoke uh, to Dave in that you're prob- you're not an abstainer in the sense that you're a sugar addict, I don't think. Um, but there are those but. who who absolutely are, and they just cannot stop, cannot bring themselves back.
1: And that obviously gets to to what uh, bitterness sort of you know told us about in the, the the various classifications. And you would sort of identify with being a harmful user. And I think that there are in my journey that there was obviously harmful use, and that was obviously wrapped up a lot with the disorderly eating, you know, that I had. That what I was eating and the volumes that I was eating was at harmful levels. That's the true sort of addictive sort of behaviours. There may have been elements of too harmful to harmful use, which has been certainly addressed by therapeutically restricting it and mostly abstaining from it. Mm. Yeah. And
0: I recently had my birthday and – I just went completely mad. It was almost as if I was an addict because I just but it's because oh I've got this one day to do it, whereas previously I would have just had a couple of things off plan um, but I did go a bit mad but so it was it was interesting to see how I was reacting to not being on plan
1: I think it's and we have this discussion with Dave and listeners who will we'll hear this about the the sorts of th- connections i was trying to sort of make now when i reflect on using sweeteners as well so you know whether there is still a connection with not only the behavior i think that that's really what you were talking about having had a long periods of abstinence and then really you know that sort of binging but whether there's connections for me using in my keto baking about still the the sweet pathways and if there were it, you know, habitual things that I've still got problems with, problematic behaviours of going back to the cookie the cookie jar, Um that because it's okay, it's a keto cookie, I can have that. But the behaviour of going back to and having another one and another one, which is very problematic in the way that I used to tuck into the Tim Tams. Um, yep. So peng- penguins for UK listeners. Yeah. So, I, um, yeah.
0: I notice if I have things with sweetener in that I want want to keep going back, not that I necessarily do, but if I have, you know, if, if I've made some keto ice cream, which has sweetener in, then I will have that every day until it's gone. Um, if I have a, you know, we make the chocolate pudding with the hard boiled eggs, it's got sweetener in. I will have that every day until it's gone. So what I tend to do is I don't make it all the time because I will Mm. keep going back to it.
1: And that's good for you because that sort of limits your exposure and I think that that's a really good strategy for you. Mm. So tell us a little bit about Dave. So Dave is a master's qualified registered dietitian, in fact internationally certified food addiction counsellor sugar coach, chef, and also understudy to Bitten Johnson and a co-leader of the Sugar Bomb in Your Brain Facebook group, created the food plan for Dr. Vera Tarman's Renaissance Food Addiction Centre in Toronto, Canada. He's also a co-founder of Sugar RX Global, a new online community providing sugar and drug food addicts with the best possible advantages to achieve ongoing freedom from addiction through CARE which is connection, action, steps, for recovery, protection, and education. He's also co-authored The Fix for Cravings. He's a devoted husband and father living a purposeful and fulfilling life in recovery. So let's hear more from Dave.
0: Welcome, Dave, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: And we always start, I don't know if you've heard our podcast, but we always start with where in the world are you?
2: Yeah, so I'm located in East Brookfield, Massachusetts. It's probably about an hour and a half west of Boston.
0: West of Boston. So near the coast?
2: Uh, An hour and a half west of the coast.
0: West. Oh, I'm going the wrong way. You'd be in the sea, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) West of Boston. Great. I've got a friend that lives in Framingham.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's somewhere between where I live in, Boston.
0: Yeah. Excellent. And we had Dr. Kevin. Dr. Kevin. Yeah. He lives in Fall River. Fall River, Dr.
2: Kevin. Yeah. We had him on our group a couple, maybe last month. He lives in Fall River. That's about an hour and 20 minutes from here, a little more south. But he's near the water. Yeah.
0: Excellent. He's great. Yeah. We loved him. So can you start, can we go to your journey to start off with and then we'll go more into addiction stuff? Yeah. Just... Take go back as far as you want and then how you came to where you are today.
2: Yeah, sure. So um I come from a family that loves to feed people. So that's just that's just something we do. Um I remember I remember as a kid, I would come home from school and I would have a parka and a backpack and I still have my gloves on. You know, I'd run downstairs. I'd grab like five packs of fruit snacks. I'd eat them. And then I'd like hide the wrappers and I had no idea why I did that. So, um, so that was going on. You know, I remember as a kid, I always ate brown food, you know, like lots and lots of carbs, apple juice, um, things like that. And I would have comments like uh, from people from like, I would go to my friend's house and they'd be like, wow, everything you eat is like a cracker or bread. And, you know, I just kind of didn't really think much of it. I think my mom did really well with the information that she had at the time, you know, when she prepared meals for us, there was a protein, there was a vegetable, you know, there was a starch. Um, usually there was a salad on the side. So I think, I think she presented us with the things that she thought was right. Um, another aspect of my childhood is my mom has been in a uh, food addiction recovery um, since I was very young, two or three. So um that's just been part of my life, her recovery. And, and so that I think influenced me in a lot of ways um, the way that I perceived life. Um, and that ultimately it led me to the way that I thought I should eat, um, which brought me um, to the point of why. Well, so I wanted to eventually combine um, my love for food and cooking and my love for helping others. So I ended up in the field of nutrition so I completed a associate's in culinary arts, and then I completed a my bachelor's in culinary nutrition, um, and that prepared me, if I so decided, to become a registered dietitian. Which at the very, very last minute, I had like two days to get in my get all my forms, and I did. Um, and I completed my master's in clinical nutrition, and completed my registered dietitian um, internship. Um, and then that sort of brought me to eventually I got to Atlantic City and I was doing um, nutrition support, which is like uh, enteral and parenteral nutrition so feeding people either um, through a tube um, or through their veins for those that aren't, weren't able to eat in an ICU. Um, and um, I thought I, I, I thought I was going to get a lot of um, a lot out of doing that work, but I realized that I really wasn't interacting with people. I was just crunching numbers and, and kind of working behind the scenes. And I just wasn't getting what I wanted out of my work and mm-hmm. I um, was far from home. So I moved, I ended up moving back home and I ended up working in bariatrics. Um, so I, uh, was a dietitian responsible for getting people prepared for bariatric surgery, which is a whole nother, um, it's kind of a whole nother world, um, but I realized that I was treating food addicts without being able to treat food addicts. So most of the patients that are coming into bariatric surgery likely would meet criteria for food addiction. Um, But I wasn't able um, to do the things that I really thought would help them. Um, Somewhere during that time, I attended a conf, uh, a training called in fact, which is the international food addiction counselor training program. It's run out of Iceland. Um, and, uh, during the intake for that program, I, I had to do an assessment on myself and essentially go through it with the woman who's running the program. Mm
0: Um,
2: and she said to me, Dave, um, you're an early stage food addict. And, um, I, you know, based on the, based on the information that we have in front of us, you know, you're an early stage food addict. And at that point, like, if you look at my mom's family, it's clear that it's present. I mean, my mom is a food addict. My sister was a food addict. So it's like, you shake my family tree, a bunch of addicts come out. So it wasn't like a big surprise to me necessarily, but it was the first time I really confronted the facts about the fact that um, I was addicted. And so I started to Uh go ahead. What
0: was your weight? What was your weight at that time? Was it? Yeah. I've always
2: been pretty lean. Um, I was probably about 10 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, I actually don't know what I weigh.
0: Okay. I was probably about around 150
2: pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So weight was definitely one of the symptoms I didn't face. Um, and I think, you know, my mom thought the babysitter was stealing food. She had no idea that it was her own kid. So, because I had always been lean, um, the other kind of compounding factor as a kid was I was on amphetamines for ADHD. So I started that in around the first grade. Uh, and I was taking them up until about three years ago. Wow. So I think my appetite was super suppressed. So what ended up happening was I would barely eat breakfast. I would barely eat lunch. I mean, I probably would have a snack like you know, fruit or carbs, but, um, I didn't really consume anything until dinnertime in in which I would have like two adult helpings. So to make up for the fact that I hadn't eaten all day. Mm. So it's kind of a lot of, I think there's a lot of artifacts. There's a lot of like noise into me figuring out that I was, um, a food addict because of the medication, the ADHD and, um, being so small.
0: Yeah. So if your mom was in a recovery program from when you were really young how come she didn't teach you differently
2: i think she she did she taught us the information that she had but i think the information is so much different than it is now um think about like the nutritional dynamic well uh, it's it's kind of still present to be honest with you but think about the um you know the information from yeah. usda and the food pyramid and my plate and all that stuff is it's really bad advice
0: yeah Um, so she was she wasn't getting the right advice
2: right correct yeah got it yeah i think gradually she learned more about her addiction like when she figured out that grains had to go um then the food dynamic in the house started to change but by that point i'm i'm 19 i'm not living at home
0: Mm. got it
2: i actually was overseas and i saw my mom six months in um i was living in israel at the time and and she came to visit me the whole family did to celebrate passover and and she was like a different person because she had been in the food for something in and on, on and off like the last 15 years um struggling trying to figure it out until she finally figured out that the grains had to go and that was when she kind of that was when her life started to transform and that was i think 16 years ago so yeah
1: so when you had um the assessment from the from the counseling training sure. assessment um so early stage food addict, what did that look like? you know what were the behaviors or the characteristics you know, of a profile of an early stage food addict?
2: yeah, so for me, I'm trying to think back you know it was probably cravings um it was probably like coming home and hitting the pantry like right away. It was probably um when I don't eat sugar I get headaches. Um those sorts of things like we call an eye opener. What an eye opener is in the addiction world is it's eating what's taking your drug first thing. So I wouldn't be able to um get in the shower without sugar. So I'd like eat two cookies on my way to the shower and then I would be up on my way to the shower, like halfway up the stairs, and I'd be like, oh, "I'm going to go grab like four more, and then I'd eat them in the shower." Yeah. So it's much like drinking in the shower, but with food.
0: Yeah. So what? What age were you at that point when you when you?
2: Oh, that was probably. Um, I'm trying to think, like early mid twenties, hmm. about ten years ago. Yeah. How
1: did your mum? How did your mum sort of work out that the grains had to go?
2: she saw someone that she had known earlier in her recovery journey and that was like doing really well um and and she's like oh my god you look amazing what are you doing she's like oh yeah i'm doing this thing and i gave up all grains um and so i think i think that was it i think just seeing someone who had done it
0: yeah so carry on with your story the yeah okay where you so are.
2: um yeah so basically during the time when I was in the bariatric clinic helping, you know, helping food addicts without helping food addicts, I met this guy named Bill Darty, and um, Bill Darty is a licensed uh, drug and alcohol counselor. And so, what we decided was that um, he was working in the same building as me. We He's like, "Will wouldn't wouldn't like an IOP? An IOP is an intensive outpatient program, um, which is formally used for drugs and alcohol treatment. Wouldn't that be helpful for someone who's getting ready for surgery?" So we started using some of the tools that they use in IOP, and we started running kind of intensive relapse prevention groups for the people that were getting ready for surgery, for people who identified with compulsion or cravings. Um, and we had really good results. The people were really well supported. Um, you can kind of look at bariatric surgery like it's a detox. I mean, they basically they're going to take you off of food for a period of time and give you a very limited amount of foods for period of weeks. Granted, there's some things in there that probably aren't so helpful, like lots of sweeteners and protein shakes. But, um, so, you know, I think people go through a period of like, kind of like this hiatus, like where they feel like they're on a cloud, they're doing really well. They don't have cravings. they are feeling really good. And then food is reintroduced, um, depending on the person and what they choose to eat. I always guided people because of my mom's experience. It's like, I wouldn't recommend you start eating grains because I just don't know what's going to happen if you do. Um, They also physically tend to swell. So, um, and their stomach is much smaller now, so it can't necessarily, um, doesn't necessarily cooperate with it. Um, But the people that chose to do that, I think, had better results than the people that didn't. The people that Mm. went back to eating things like oatmeal and sweet potatoes and things like that. Um, So then... um, the position was actually removed. Um, I ended up going through a period of unemployment for a time. And then I ended up working in a nursing home um, that was actually run by the Catholic church. And uh, there I was pushing sugar. I mean, that's what dietitians do in nursing homes. So it was a really a big conflict for me to be believing what I believe. And at the same time, like handing out ensure, you know, so um, and that sort of, found its way to an end um i was cut down to part-time and now and then more recently the position was removed and so now what i do is i work um full-time helping food addicts we run an online community called triggerx global um we run intensive programs you know helping addicts we teach them about recovery um you know we have a lot of tools that we use one of them um Luis had mentioned before the call, the guilt debate and romance. And actually that idea came from Bill Daugherty, the the guy I mentioned in terms of the helping me run relapse prevention groups in the bariatric setting. And so it all, it all came together. And, um, the three of us, um, you know, we believe in our mission, we believe in what we're doing now and we're, we're privileged to be able to do it. So. So,
0: so tell the listeners who the three of you are. Yes.
2: Yeah, so myself, um, my mom, Judy Wolf, and, uh, and our friend, Anna Freeling, um, Anna Freeling is trained as a primal health coach. Um, also self identifies as a food and sugar addict. And, uh, she's also an, in long-term recovery from substance and, uh, and, um, and my mom is, a is also a food addiction counselor, just like myself.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Can you tell us more about this guilt debate and romance triangle?
2: Yeah. So basically what we found now was, um, A lot of people have a hard time identifying what their trigger foods are. So I think that it's, they get confused or overwhelmed, or sometimes I think the disease of addiction like plays with our mind and it, and it has a, it has sort of like a play, a tape, it plays us through and it ends up kind of baffling us. Um, We say cunning, baffling and powerful, right? We just can't wrap our head around it. So what the triangle is, is basically um, if you have a food that you debate whether you should or shouldn't consume, then it's a trigger food right It will cause cravings if you have a food that when you eat it, you feel guilty afterwards guilt debate, remorse, regret, then it's a trigger food or if you have romance or this one's a little trickier, but it's kind of more like anticipation, longing, kind of think about a secret rendezvous um a food that's more than just a food to you it's an experience
0: something like um i things that i can think of are things like my grandma used to make or exactly
2: yeah those like of um, things. nostalgic things yeah right it's really interesting the word nostalgia i think it's in latin or greek it breaks down to the pain of returning home so i think that's really like a that's powerful and so the triangle so if any of those points there may be foods that trigger guilt debate and romance or just romance, or guilt and debate, or any sort of combination of the three. But any food that hits any aspect of that triangle is a food that likely um, is not for you. Um, It will trigger the addicted brain, the limbic system, to fire. You'll get a dopamine surge, and you'll be on a cycle of eating for cravings, eating for cravings, eating for cravings, eating for cravings.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can sort of identify with that, except... That I'm very strong with myself and I just, um, will stop, stop it continuing. So sure. I think I'm more at what Bitten Johnson would, would consider a, a harmful user. Sure. Yeah. So I was going to say that. Yeah. What, what I'm thinking of right now is, um, as we're recording, which is early October, I am coming up to my birthday and I know I'm going to have a homemade chocolate cake shop bought chocolate cake, I could leave it, not have any. But if my mom and my son are going to make me a chocolate cake, then I'm going to have some. But I also know that when it's gone, it's gone. And that's it. I'll be back on plan.
2: Right. Yeah. So you're able to do that. Yeah. To me, that's amazing. (laughs) Because I can't (laughs) do that.
0: Yeah, the other thing that I do that people find sorry, Louise. The other thing that I do that people find amazing. Look, I'm going to show you. These are these are all keto friendly stuff, but these have been on my desk for weeks and weeks and weeks. Sure, sure. Um, but when I was it when I was eating normal chocolate, people would always be surprised that I would have a strip of chocolate off the chocolate bar, and then the, the chocolate bar could be sitting by my side. Sure. For weeks, and it would still be there. And I used to often throw chocolate away because you know if i've had a bit i'm fine which yeah, see, is an idea it even I wouldn't be able to do
2: it bewilders me that someone would like let a wine get warm you know or a food you know um you know it's funny
1: <laughs> yeah so un- unlike jackie unlike jackie <laughs> um Louise over here is the one that would basically would be mainlining the packet of, um, you know, of sure. cookies, right? So I would just basically mainline it, and the reason I know that that I can do that is because I would go back. So in Australia we have the Tim Tams, and you know, like in the UK similar to, to sort of penguins, there's a there's eleven Tim Tams in the packet, and the reason I know that is because I can eat, you know, i would just the one, and then you go back. And then you go back and you go back, you know, like you, sure. you know, going up and down the, the stairs.
0: Sure. And I was
1: I was just have I was just I'm just absolutely amazed at how different Jackie and I, our physiology is, right? You know, her brain doesn't have obviously those those pathways or those triggers or you know. I, I just am absolutely amazed at Jackie's ability to moderate. And whereas I can't do that. But do I have the same response with sweetness? And this is, this came up in conversation just tonight. Um, we, I was just thinking about all those keto treats. So, I do I have I substituted, um, you know, my methadone, <laughs> um, you know, my, my crack, my sugar crack for erythritol and xylitol in my in my keto baking.
2: You're asking me if you've replaced one for the other. What do you think?
1: Which is interesting because there's certain things that um, I certainly don't have the guilt, remorse and debate when I'm eating it. But I think habitually, I can't stop at, say, if I make a, a, a keto cookie, you know, I will habitually, I will go back to that. But some keto things like um, the protein pudding, so the chocolate egg pudding, so it's oh. got chocolate and some erythritol in it. So it depends whether it's a keto cookie or cake, um, but the keto type um, yeah, particularly the pudding uh, yogurt, like the the dairy sorts of stuff like especially with yogurt, I can go back to to that so which I know it doesn't have sugar in it, but I'm just more concerned about have I substituted the sugar for, you know in the urethra in and that sort of thing. Well, let's get the point.
2: Is the is the eating pattern in the same like when you were eating the um sugar? was it as frequent as you eat sweetener?
1: No, not at all. Not at all.
0: In what sense? in what sense not at all, Louise? As in you eat less now or more?
1: Well, um certainly the baking, I I don't do a lot of baking. But when I do bake, um yeah, like a cake or as a tr- as a treat. So um a cake or the cookies the muffins like a sweet or a savory like I don't have the same response with a sweet muffin as I do you know with the savory muffin so the sweet muffin I will may well have I go back that's that's to me is the trigger behavior is the going back for one more so there's
2: some affinity with sweetness but you're not sure if it taps into the same system that sugar did.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I'm doing. Which was interesting when we spoke to um, Netta Netta Gorman. Sure, you sure. Know, she, you know when she was saying about how that sort of you get, you get that sort of sugar bombing in your mind even with the sweeteners that you can. Others, I, I was curious as to um, you know the pathways with that.
2: I think uh, I think everyone has a unique experience with these things. You know, I think that. Um, if I were to know the answer to that question, that would be super, but it, I think it's totally dependent on you, Mm. um, your relationship with the food, um, the thinking around it. Like I, I, it doesn't sound like as, as insane as it did with sugar. Um, but it doesn't sound super sane either. So you kind of have to, decide. I think with addiction, one of the things that's really helpful is using pain as a teacher. You know, and and um and that was the case for me. Um and then you have to kind of play around with like what what aspect is working and what aspect isn't working. Um so uh there's certainly a lot less harm in you doing it the way that you do it now as opposed to the way that you used to do it. Um it's just a matter of if it's worth the harm now.
1: Which it's interesting because the, I mean, even with the the sweetness. So I know that it's a non-calorific, you know, response. I still get the taste response. But you know, I was curious as if there, if there was any of the that dopamine, as you said, you know. The, the I mean, there. I mean,
2: definitely, but, it could be what happens to you.
1: Yeah, as you said, it's unique, but. As you as you're highlighting, it's the behaviour that it triggers. You know that was the thing about even just um, I was thinking about making romantically. I'm just now that you put it in that context romantically of the little making a batch of the, the you know they're keto, so it's you know it's good. Um, in inverted commas there of you know the the little cookies But I know that it sort of evokes and that's the the romancy sort of um response of going and eating something that's a treat, you know, that habitually it's about right. not just stopping at one because you know once you pop you can't stop, you know that that old pringles thing. Sure, sure. With 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 that. Yeah, I think
2: yeah, I just think like food for a lot of people has become entertainment. And so I know for myself um um, that if, if I pretend that food is entertaining, it just goes south, you know, really fast. So I t- I would take a look at that in, in, you know, in that regard, it sounds like there's a little bit of, um, you know, there's, you're, there's a reward there. Right. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, what happens for you mm. with it.
0: So Louise, I identify with what you're saying, because as a moderator, if I make even the the egg pudding, chocolate pudding, which is mostly eggs and a little bit of chocolate and a bit of um, sweetener, if I make that, I have to have it every day after my supper until it's gone. And if I make a cheesecake, I have to have it every day until it's gone. And the way I moderate it is by not making it very often. And that's the way I moderate. And if I have a square of chocolate, I tend to have one every day. That's day. They're always in the house. So I tend to have something, but it's usually just a square of chocolate, which is the least carby and the least harmful, I guess. But So I, I can identify with that in that you have to keep going. But what I don't do very often is keep going back to it in the same session. So I will take a bit of pudding and or I will make myself stop eating it at some point, you know, section off a bit and then stop myself. So I can identify with that triggering more, wanting to eat it more. And so the way I moderate it is by not making it very often.
1: Absolutely. And, And, you know, I don't do a lot of, well, haven't recently because we've been doing the alternate day fasting. So but that's an interesting conundrum as well because when we've, Say I, I bake the the batch of cookies, so on the fasting days they go in the cupboard because I don't want to see them. So you know that's part of the abstinence program as well as just you know put it parking it away. But the other thing is, but I would go back in the same session. That's the thing. So if the cookie was there, and you know maybe half an hour later we might go back for another one, and maybe go back for another one. So it, it would be more than just the the one. So, and that's part of. I know that that was a really old bad habit. That that would be, um, yeah, going back to the the fridge where we in Australia would keep the keep the Tim Tams in the in the freezer. So, um, yeah, and that would be going back to the fridge until that packet. Because in for a penny, in for a pound. So that was one of our food values. Was nah, well you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, and you know. That's it, so um in for a penny in for a pound, might as well eat the whole packet now,
2: hmm. I mean, it sounds like a dopamine you know pattern to me, but I, it, it just sounds like it's it's more subtle than it used to be,
1: yeah, and it, I think you know when we've had well you know have you don't get to be morbidly obese without having some dysfunctional relationship with food and you know the the recovery you know process is obviously you spend a lot of time introspective and you know reflecting and that's obviously unpacking a lot of you know what are those behaviors you know the 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 things the triggers and that sort of thing so yeah i can see that that's an imprint you know from those food values about not wasting food particularly and when my son similarly had adhd i would eat his food because obviously at for him, dinner, he wasn't hungry at dinner. So I would eat all of what was left on his plate. Um, you know, His hunger came on weekends when we didn't medicate him on, on weekends. So he would have three times as much food on the weekends. But certainly during the week, I'd be eating a lot of his food as well. So... Dave, what you said, you were taking this ADHD
0: medication up until three years ago. What happened three years ago that yeah, you I was, made um, you come off it?
2: I had actually lost a prescription. Like I lost a paper um, and I went, I, I notified the doctor that I had lost it um, and um, they said there was nothing they could do. So then I went back the next month to pick up the prescription and they forced me to urine test. Um, and I did, and my urine was clean, but it cost me about $550 for that test. So it was just my, the impetus, like, I'm not, I'm not going through this again. So I, I worked to get off of the meds. So, um, I felt disrespected, I guess. So that was my, um, my main, (laughs) my main motivation, um, to not feel that way again. So it was kind of, kind of funny. And you know, when you have a chemical like that in your brain, your brain functions differently. So I just knew that well, I, at least I thought that I would have more brain healing, uh, if I was able to give that up.
0: And, and, and so what did you notice when, as you were coming off of it? And, oh man, the I mean, differences?
2: The, I noticed, well, first of all, I was dependent, um, was chemically dependent on, and I wouldn't say I was addicted to it. Um, but I was definitely dependent. I definitely went through withdrawals um honestly for about nine or ten months um
0: and and so now would you i mean you had this uh, diagnosis of adhd when you were young would you say say you still have it or has oh 100
2: yeah absolutely um definitely yeah
0: i just wondered if if the way i think though it, eating, i think it's labeled it changed.
2: i think it's interesting because when you look at how these things are diagnosed, a lot of it is just like, you have a different kind of brain, you know, just like an addict has a special brain. You know, we say it's chronic and progressive and fatal, but really you have a special brain. I mean, I feel like we're the doers and the movers. We were probably the people that were like, let's go get an antelope. I mean, it's time to go. You know, we were, we're hardwired for survival. So um, I think we're really adapt, adapted. Um, So, but I also think Um, So I can look at my ADHD as maybe not a disease, but maybe it's a kind of brain, you know, maybe I'm the kind of guy that's designed to be a carpenter or a plumber. You know, I'm the kind of guy that's designed to build blueprints, not, you know, sit at a desk in front of a computer.
1: Hmm. So I
2: think it's a lot easier for me to focus when I find things interesting. Um, And it's a lot easier for things to stay interesting if they're constantly changing. Um, So, but that's kind of like, that's kind of, Lines up with addiction too, you know. It's like more different, better. So um, it's hard to say: is it an illness or a special kind of brain? No. I just kind of don't want to think that I'm diseased, so um, I look I, at it differently.
0: I like that special brain because my son is one of my sons is a bit dyslexic, and I just say to him that it's it's you know it's that motor skill of writing which he can write he will transpose a lot of letters. But a lot of it is his brain is working so much faster than his hand can move.
1: Sure,
2: sure.
0: And, um, you know, he can read. So he's not terribly dyslexic, but he did struggle at school. So he knows that he has to do a job, which is using his hands, which is keeping him engaged. He's always different. So that's what he knows he's got to do sure. to work with it. And And I just think it is a brain difference and i i like the fact that you're saying that it was um probably pre- prehistorically that you were the one would be doing the hunting and go getting um i suffer with or have suffered with migraines and and i think sometimes that is about um being you know sometimes if you're awake at night and things like that you don't sleep all through the night and i think you know maybe i was one of these people that was on alert at night in the cave or wherever we were, were being just being aware
1: of any slight difference. So,
0: yeah, it's interesting.
1: The way that it's um, certainly as a parent of an ADHD son, and the way that I looked at it was exactly that there was a prehistoric sort of function that he was stoking the fire and he was hypervigilant and he was out on alert. Um, you know and certainly with the hyperactivity yes he was always constantly on the move um, and that was really part of that neurophysiology and which I came to sort of know a little bit more when he we had the brain mapping and we did the biofeedback so and that was to sort of have a look at um, the frontal regulation the frontal lobe sort of regulation but Hayden's um, ADHD sort of presentation was a little bit atypical. It was more prefrontal as opposed to frontal lobe. So, and they had to sort of modulate, um, you know, the EEG sort of, you know, modulation and recalibration through that through a series of sessions with a psychologist. So he came off of um, he came off of the the dexamphetamine around that time as well. So fifteen, um, but. He is very much um, – every day needs to be different. He's in, like, supply and delivery, logistics. So he's very social, very personable, Mr. Habitat. Um But the good thing is that every day is different. It's constantly evolving, and he's definitely not a desk guy. But, um, you know, he's focused on, on delivery in, in terms of the supply and delivery. But, yeah, they, he needs a job that every day is different. Yeah, it's true. But certainly, but and certainly his food addiction, um, being very carbohydrate addicted, um, you know. But that's not unusual for a young man. Um, but and I, I do worry that he would do better. Have you know if you're if you're eating no grains, do you, do you feel better for not having having the grains as well?
2: Uh, you know, oddly, I'm a I'm a professionally trained artist and bread baker. So giving up, um, mm-hmm. giving up bread was a big deal for me. Uh, it was part of my life. I mean, like I had three starters in my fridge, like three different ones. I had like a rye starter and Oh, Oh, like a high hydration starter and a low hydration starter. So like, they had like names, like <laughs> I was like really into bread. I ran an artisan bread baking blog for like seven years. Um, if you've ever seen that movie, Julie and Julia, where the woman, I did that with bread books, like every year. So for me, giving up brains was like a big thing, and and I when I did, um, it's kind of funny. I just moved, and like I found two KitchenAids, and it was just like oh, kind of, kind of like a punch in the gut. Um, so, but when I eat bread now, I feel really sick. Um, I have like stomach pain. Like it, it, it just feels like I can almost like feel it just attacking me. So. Um, and I did, I, I at one point I, I gave it up and I try, my friend was visiting and I made this like completely whole grain rye bread, like a hundred percent, um, whole grain. It's like really heavy and really dense. And I had like a tiny slice and I felt like I was being punched in the stomach by Mike Tyson. So I was like, nah, nah, it's not worth it. So, um, but I would eat a whole loaf, you know, like over the course of, like you were saying, like. I would go back, but I would go back every like twelve minutes. So so it was it was like twenty-four to forty-eight hours and like two bulls were gone. Um mm-hmm. so it's interesting. So yeah, um I haven't had grains really since then. Um that was almost four years ago.
1: Yeah. It it's interesting what what that sort of image. I was just imagining, you know, that scene from Alien where this thing was coming out of your stomach. Oh yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah um
1: there that, that must be culturally a bit challenging for you as well, so you know in terms of not having having unleavened breads
2: um, yeah, you know I don't know i I've kind of created my own sort of rituals, so um through and that's been through my recovery process, i guess, so i don't i like identify culturally as from my upbringing, but don't really practice a lot of it. Um, so I don't think it's that challenging. I think we made a decision, um, to live a happy and healthy life. And if that means I can't do this or I can't do that, no big deal. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just, I don't want to partake in things that harm me. I think that one of the, one of the my matches is I'm not going to put anything in my body that'll harm me physical, physically, mentally, or spiritually. So, um and that and that would fit in right so that's like if i were to eat bread um not only would i have pain but i would have cravings for more pain like it's it's insanity so um i think that um i'm okay with it
0: yeah so you said you've given up grains four years ago was that when you you did the in fact it was a little
2: after yeah it was um it was probably like two years after, um, I gave up sugar, alcohol, and grains pretty much on the same day.
0: So what, what triggered that? What, what, what changed in you to make you say, I'm going to do this?
2: I lost, I lost my job from the bariatric clinic and I was just kind of reevaluating my life. Um, and, uh, I just wanted to change who I was. And I think that was part of that process was getting rid of the things that were harming me, um, I mean I really needed like an emotional and a spiritual overhauling but so part of that process was um abstaining from some of the things that were causing me suffering.
0: Hmm. So when you when people come to you now how do they how do they present them how do they present and is everybody that comes to you an addict or some of them are can well can you explain the difference between um addict and so and harmful user and There's a couple of others, aren't there? Sure.
2: So, um, like if someone goes in to have like hip surgery and they're given opiates in the hospital, um, a harmful user will use the opiates and then they'll withdraw from the opiates. And then they'll say, "Um, God, that was awful. I don't ever want an opiate again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah um an addict doesn't do that an addict can't stop using opiates um even though they want to stop they can't stop so i think i think that's the difference i think that the way that we frame and the way that we message at sugarx global um there is no reason for a harmful user to stick around um you know we talk about you know the treatment treating the brain and, and abstinence and and they, I think it would be so uncomfortable for a moderator to be there. They wouldn't want to be there. So I think that's one of the things we do is we message at the people that we want to see. Um, like I had a phone call the other day with someone that was reaching out to me. She heard about me on Diet Doctor. Um, I think she was probably watching Bitten Johnson's videos. And, you know, she mentions me and um, and I had a conversation with her and I said, I don't I'm not your cup of tea. Like based on what you're trying to do, I'm not the guy. Like, um, so I think that happens, but it happens very rarely. Um, most of the people that find me through or through word of mouth, um, and they're coming through someone that has worked with me or knows me. And a lot of it actually comes through the 12 step fellowships for food, um, whether that's Old readers anonymous or any of those programs. Um, so, but I think a lot of the people, that we're reaching now are coming to us based on, um, you know, they hear about crushing their cravings and they resonate with cravings and most people that resonate with cravings um, it and that want to crush them um, are probably addicted on some level. Mm-hmm. So I think that that helps. And then we run educational events. So we run like five day challenges and, we're going to try to do like a one day challenge. Um, uh, and so if you don't, if you come to day one and we're basically presenting you with addiction as a brain disease, um, you know, um, and you come to day two, I'm assuming you resonated with day one. Um, and so I think it weeds out the folks that um, usually when you do an event like that, you know, you'd get like hundred people on the first day and there's like a 30, there's like a 30 person drop, um, by day two. Um, but the people that, the people that are getting the information that, that helps them, you know, they stick around. So, mm. so I think it's kind of self-selective in that way.
0: Yeah. So tell us about your program.
2: Yeah. So basically what we've done is we've built a community. Um, and I think that's the backbone. I think, um, you know, we do education and and some other things, but the backbone is the community and the community is a community of people who identify with as a sugar addict or a food addict um, that want to be with others who are seeking recovery from the same thing, you know, Um, and we, we span, I mean, we have people in California and we have people in Sydney, So, you know, we're dealing with like a 17 or an 18 hour time difference, you know. So um, we run 10 or 12 groups a week. Um, They're run by the coaches, um, myself, Anna and Judy. And, you know, we all have different styles and we all do different things. And and so there's really a a large mix of of groups and topics and coaching. And we do breakouts and, you know, we we try to dive deep. And we, we really believe that we don't need to create rules for people that, um, that if you're here for the right reasons, that it will self-sustain itself. You know, I think, I think a lot of the programs that are similar to, or in the food addiction space, there's a lot of regulations, like you can't talk to people outside of the community platform. And we encourage people to communicate outside of our platform. We believe that you need to create meaningful relationships in recovery to sustain recovery. Um, you know, we, we try not to focus on the food. I think people need to figure out the food so that they can live, um, their life. But the reality is that the food is like five or 10% of recovery. So you figure out 5% of a puzzle. I mean, (laughs) you barely have the borders done, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that we really focus on what we call getting people into living. Like I want you to get out of the food and into life. So you can work on the things that are important to you, your relationships, your marriage, your kids, your family, um, healing your body, your weight, what, whatever those things are, those value things, those things that um, those purposes that you have or, or wish you had. Um, so you can focus on those things. So you have the energy um, to, to live a meaningful and fulfilling life.
0: Yeah. Um, and then I we, guess it's like creating, creating moments. Uh, You know, moments you remember because you you won't remember that donut you ate yesterday, but you will remember something that you've done with your family or a friend or.
2: Right, I mean, I think it's fleeting. You know, even some of the relationships we have are fleeting. So, creating a space where people can create meaningful meaning, I think, I think it it's that, and I think addiction is um, disorienting. and for the person who has it, for the people who are around that person, so to create, to create a space where people can unify together and have unity, but also, you know, change. Because, like, I might not see something I'm doing. Like, it might be totally oblivious to me. But, like, if I see, like, Sally do it and talk about it, and, like, I can nod my head, like, oh, I see myself in what she was saying. Like, that's the power of a group identification. Um, we've found that one-on-one work in terms of addiction is exhausting. It's exhausting for the participant. It's exhausting for the coach. Um, group work is incredibly powerful. Uh, and I think it, it's the most powerful thing, uh, mm-hmm. when you get a bunch of people together with a common goal and, you know, everyone's different, everyone's in a different place. We're all, we're all spokes on the wheel, so to speak, but we have this one thing in common, right? That we're suffering and we don't want to suffer anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and we all help each other. I love that. The other thing we do is we have this um, we have a nine-week program. It's called the what is it, Recovery Accelerator 2.0 program. And it's an it's an intensive nine-week program. And again, it's not about the food, it's about everything else. It's about vulnerability, it's about creating meaningful relationships, it's about but it's about it's put in an order in, in such a way where it's about it's about learning to love the skin you're in, you know. Um, I think we have a really unique you kind know, of unique approach to body image, which I think is a big issue for a lot of people um, and I think I think a lot of the education on body image is really cold and boring and kind of sad and um I mean my body has been there every step of the way for me so i like i love my body for that it 's been through i 've put my body through a lot of hell um and it 's still there for me. My heart yeah. still beats, my lungs still pump, you know, um, it's, it's been with me more than anything else. So, um, I think creating a kind of a different way to perceive it, to learn, to love it. And that can take time, you know? Um, so I, I think it's a new vantage point on recovery. And I think it's, you know, it has, has enough science. It has the emotional stuff it has it all. I mean, it's teaching people to, to change and and to grow and it's a constant process so
0: yeah it's a journey
2: absolutely 100 percent. yeah i still haven't arrived
0: no and and maybe you we will never we'll never arrive
2: i'm okay with that
1: i was talking to my we're on the path we are i was talking to my son today and he's still in australia and you know he was you know he's been debating about career and, and job changes and it, that's exactly what i was sort of saying i don't know what i'm doing i'm still making stuff up "Oh, right. what mom you know you, that was really disorientating for him because you know this you, it sort of you know when you have your go-to figures that you know appear confident or assured or know what they're doing and it's like no, <laughs> I'm still making things up. But I'll talk to you about my decision-making, you know. I, this is how I evaluate, you know, how I come to make a decision. And even then, you know, I'm still debating it, And you know, at the last minute. Sure. So, and that's really something that I just want to circle back to, that addiction is disorientating. But, you know, addiction is disorientating. It's disruptive, and as you were saying, it robs. Jackie was saying, you know, it robs these moments. And really, what we're trying to do is, you know, create some, you know, a, a space, you know, a calm, you know, to get that orientation, to be able to get the the less chaos in, in that, you know, whether it's the neurophysiology, the you know, the behaviors and the safety um, back, you know, that restorative. As you said, you know, recovery is restorative and a journey.
2: It is. And that takes time, right? I mean, it really, it really does. You're talking about like totally like rebuilding your brain. I mean, like you talked about those pathways. We have like this rut in the road. And if I enter into that rut in the road, I'm going to end up in the same place every time. Like it's like a, it's like a warp tunnel, just
1: Mm. it's
2: like a vacuum. It just sucks me out, spits me out. Um, so we have to create these new paths. Um, and I think That's easier with people around me are who can resonate. I think it's easier with a little help from my friends. You know, it's easier with the tools. Like we have tools we didn't know about when we started, man, if I had access to this, when I started, I'd be way ahead. Um, It would have really alleviated a lot of my suffering and a lot of my pain um, much faster than trying to figure it out on my own, which Mm. was daunting
0: but i guess you're the person you are and in the way you're helping others is because of that journey that you, oh,
2: absolutely. you went through yeah yeah i mean ultimately addiction's a gift it's just uh, you just have to get to the point where um you see it that way
1: ultimately addiction is a gift yeah i'm, I'm okay i'll have to have to sort of process that one because i, I you know going back to your to your mom you know the fact that she spent i was gonna say many many years obviously in this recovery cycle until she met that friend you know that do you see that that was obviously that's the the seminal moment you know that's the that's the light bulb moment was obviously if she hadn't asked that question then her sliding doors moment might have been very different
2: yeah well i think it's If I look at my recovery and the meaning that my life has, all of the aspects of my life that have meaning now are derived from the fact that I, that I'm an addict. Like the relationships I have with people, the conversations I get to have with those people, the things that make me laugh, the things that make me cry. Most of those things are happening in the recovery space, or I'm perceiving beauty because of my, because of, the lens that I look at life through is through recovery. So like, you know, the leaves are changing like outside, like, I mean, there's beauty in death. Like I can look at life that way. And, and, um, I wouldn't have that perspective if I wasn't at least spiritually on death's door. So I think for me, it's a gift. Um, did it take me a long time to get to that point? (laughs) Yeah, it did. (laughs) It was a lot of hard work and a lot of suffering, but I think it was worth it.
1: That's a gift. Jackie's got a gift. (laughs) The (laughs) gift of life. That's right. (laughs) So what we'd like to do is be able to get people in contact with you. What would be the best way that people can get in contact with you?
2: Yeah, so you can reach us at sugarxglobal.com, or I'm also on Twitter at uh, SRX um and um that would be a great place to do that
0: great and we'll put that in the show notes so sugar x is that sugar with an x or sugar ex no e no e correct Just an x. yeah excellent great so before we finish could you leave us with three top tips
2: yeah i would say for me um the biggest thing is to find a group of people that you can identify with and share this process with i think that is going to take you forward faster than anything else. I think the most powerful thing that you can ask. So tip number two is, is ask for help. You know, I think that's a really a big burden and that's a big step forward. And, and perhaps you've asked someone for help and they've, and you've lost connection with them. Just reach out, say hi, you know, and, and, and reconnect um, and see if that takes you forward. And I think, I think the third The third thing is really realizing that it's really not about the food. I think that we do need to eliminate cravings. We do. um, But that is, that is the prologue of the story of recovery. You know, I I compare it to like, it's, it's the Hobbit compared to the Lord of the Rings. Like it's the backstory. So we figure out the food so we can get free. And then the work begins um, to understand what, you know, what our freedom is and, And I think a big part of that is sharing it with others. So, Mm.
0: yeah. So in a way you have to deal with the food aspect of it, but that's just the first step in the, in the process. I
2: think when, when we reintroduce um, the food, the, the drug, drug food, right. Our, our recovery is halted. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is. I think it is a precursor. We have to figure that part out, but it's not where the magic happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you do feel different when you put your drugs down. There's no question about it. And you may go through a period of withdrawal, which is going to be hard. But we've done hard things. Um, but I think the real work happens once we once we've put it down and and we start working on making our life better one day at a time.
1: Yeah, lovely. Thank you so much. Um, some really great insights there in really coming to understand our relationships and obviously how functional and obviously dysfunctional in terms of addiction and the power that that addiction has over us. So um, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Jackie, who knew that sugar would be so emotionally connected the guilt the romance the debate it's cunning and baffling i who knew who knew that this thing had such a
0: power over us i mean i knew to some extent because i knew that um from a long time ago that it lights up the same pathways in the brain as alcohol and cocaine so yeah you sort of know it but i'd never sort of linked it you know, that, that triangle, the debate, romance and guilt triangle, that was really interesting and definitely something to think about.
1: I, I can just stand there in front of the fridge and going, I'm debating this and I, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about and salivating and I'm just I'm just saying to myself, and thinking and remembering, how many conversations have I had? You know, at the fridge or the freezer door, over the packet of you know the Tim Tams, as as I've sort of hoed through all eleven of those cookies. You know, where I've gone? Oh, I've regretted that. Why did I do that? And there's guilt. You know, should I? Shouldn't I? Those sorts of things. So I just the the minutes, the hours, the years that I've spent invested in food that yeah.
0: way and but even before you get to the fridge you don't necessarily have to be at the fridge you could be sitting here at your desk doing some work and 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 you're debating should i shouldn't i should i shouldn't i
1: but we'll hear um later from an, from another guest about the car you know and about how we go to the the gas station or the petrol station and you know we're, we're there. In the aisles, you know, whether it's a supermarket or this, particularly the gas station's really bad, isn't it? You know, where you have the, the chocolate, um, the chocolate bars there. You know, those sorts of things, you know, where you, you get your, um, your petrol and your, you know, the two for one, you know, the special offers, you know, do you want to upsize that? So I think those sorts of connections where we habitually, engage in in food that way mm, yeah and it was interesting that
0: it was when dave did the in fact course that he he did the test and he came back that he had early signs of addiction that sort of set him on the path to doing something about it but he recognized that his mum was a sugar addict or she knew she was a sugar addict even when even did. when he was a young
1: But I think that that was the thing that because she didn't have the tools as, as, you know, as enlightened, as empowered now as as Dave is now, where, you know, it was his mum's friend that led her on her recovery journey. But for him, I think what resonates with me when he sort of said, I don't want to put anything into my body that's going to do harm. And I think once we conceptualise that that sugar, Is harmful to my health or to to my body then for me being an abstainer that immediately sets up that rule base that i know that there's a boundary and that you know if i do that then there's going to be harm you know and i don't want to harm because i prioritize my health my health belief is and my health behaviors are to not do harm to my body so i can clearly see that and that resonates really well with me
0: yeah and it's when it becomes part of your identity of that's who I am that it it takes on a whole new life and and it becomes much easier to sustain and to
1: stay on track I think that that sort of speaks to habits and, and I know that you've read the the work of Gretchen Rubin and I think that those sorts of habits are very easy for me where I know that there's this loophole thinkings of the the perils of the breakfast buffet oh, I think we've spoken about that before but um yeah where I can get rid of everything, you know, for me, an abstainer. So that's just a hard and fast no. So those harmful things, and we've spoken about Bitten Johnson sort of being a harmful user, but, um, yeah, but it's interesting to reflect on how I've engaged in the guilt thinking and those emotions, the romance and the debate. So thank you very much, Dave, for certainly crushing my cravings. Um, and the enlightenment now about you know even just the use of sweeteners so i think that that's things for me to think about and some great takeaways from this this episode yeah where can we get the show notes for this episode jackie
0: so the show notes are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero six zero thanks jackie search for fabulously keto on facebook our facebook page is called fabulously keto and you can follow us there or you can follow us on twitter our handle is fabulously keto or follow us on instagram fabulously keto one did you enjoy the show let us know you listened by tagging us in your insta story or instagram post using the handle fabulously keto one and the hashtag tfkp